used a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 573, Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to be considering a prophecy that was told hundreds of years before Christ would come. And uh, it just kind of struck me this morning, uh, even as I was working my way back through this text, how amazing is it that we have these prophetic words that they might strengthen our faith? And so we're just going to read this, and we might be tempted to just kind of lose the wonder that this man, Isaiah, there was a man named Isaiah, he lived 700 years before Jesus was born, and he told us about him, who he would be, what he would do, and I just find that utterly extraordinary. I pray that God would help us see the wonder in it. And so Isaiah chapter 9, uh, we're going to begin in verse 1 this morning. Hear now the word of God. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Father, we, we have no other hope than this son who you promise to give to us. I pray that we would understand that truth this morning as we consider your word. I pray in particular for those who might come into this room this morning and they might characterize their life as a time of darkness, a time of oppression, Father, I, I pray in your kindness to them, you would not leave them in that place. That as we consider the promise foretold to us and the fulfillment that we have seen in Jesus Christ, that we indeed would find great joy in our heart, that we would find light in our darkness because you have given your Son to us. May we know the joy that is in receiving Jesus. So we, we go after joy today. We go after light today. We go after the Prince of Peace today. We pray that we might receive him. And not simply for us, Father, but we pray for those in Kentucky today. And ask, Father, in the midst of great turmoil and trouble, that the Prince of Peace would reign there as well. That he would provide peace in his presence. That the gospel would abound through faithful gospel witnesses of the churches there in Kentucky. And that they would give hope to those who are mourning not just the loss of property, but the loss of loved ones. May the gospel abound. That is the only hope for those there and those here and those around this world. So do it, we pray, 
In Jesus' name, amen. It was in the year of 1865 that a 36-year-old Englishman by the name of William Booth began a ministry which would later be known as the Salvation Army. Booth intended to meet the physical and the spiritual needs of England's most destitute. And so he would minister to prostitutes and the homeless and drunkards. And as he did, and those who followed him, many would place their faith in Christ through this ministry. And yet this ministry, despite its success, was rather polarizing. It actually created a great number of uh, what, what could be called enemies. I don't know of a better word for this. You see, th those who served in Booth's Salvation Army were often pelted with hot coals, sprayed with tar, beaten, stoned, and even a handful were kicked to death in the streets of London. General Booth himself was often in the thick of it. He came home often bleeding and bruised from being attacked for preaching the gospel in the slums of England, and yet he persisted. He continued on. In fact, the historians tell us that William Booth probably preached around 60,000 sermons, <laughs> which is just mind-boggling to me. Booth gave himself to this ministry because of the ministry that he saw in Jesus. He just saw this as an example of Jesus, that Jesus came to meet the needs of the poor and to preach the gospel to the poor, not from afar, but, but with them. And so like Jesus, Booth wanted to go and be with them and live among them. I mean, from the, from the very beginning of the Gospels, this is how we're told that Jesus has ministered, that his life has come into our life, that he might be near to us. In fact, even at, uh, before his birth, the angel will come in the Gospel of Matthew, I believe it is, and announce to Joseph in that dream that you shall call this child Emmanuel, which means God with us. Right? Of course, the angel's not coming up with that. The angel's simply quoting scripture from the book of Isaiah. And so today we, we begin an Advent series of four, four sermons in the book of Isaiah today and next Sunday, the Christmas Eve, and then the Sunday immediately following uh, Christmas from the book of Isaiah. These are promises of the coming Messiah given 700 years before he came. I just think about it, 700 years. Our country is sh just shy of 250 years ago. So like multiply the length of our country by three. This is how long uh, ago that Isaiah would give these prophecies prior to Christ's coming. And they are so clear, they so clearly lay out who Jesus is and what he will do, uh, that many critics of Christianity believed and argued for hundreds of years that the book of Isaiah could not have been written prior to the birth of Jesus. That at least parts of it had to be later editions once Jesus was here and they added these prophecies, if you will, uh, to make it look like they predicted Jesus. And that theory was, was taught in our, our schools and our universities up until about 1947 when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered and we discovered intact in copies of the book of Isaiah uh, dated about 200 years before the birth of Jesus, showing us that indeed I, Isaiah did write these prior to Christ's advent. In fact, it's so clear, I don't know if I just said this, that, that many people have called the book of Isaiah the fifth gospel because it so beautifully points us to Jesus. And so we come here uh, to perhaps one of the most famous uh, predictions, at least of his, uh, his birth. We Here in Isaiah chapter 9, it is somewhat of a birth announcement, isn't it? You see that in verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Sometimes you receive those birth announcements in the mail, don't you? And, you know, the baby has got red hair and blue eyes and, and is very, very beautiful, of course, and um, and you're all very happy for them. And, and we love to get those birth announcements. They're wonderful. What if you got a birth announcement that came before the baby was born? That would be pretty interesting. And, and, and the announcement didn't simply say, okay, well, you know, he's, 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 you know, he's, he's this long and he's this fat or whatever, this, this heavy, I should say, right? And, uh, right, this is what, like, the bare facts. But the, the birth announcement said, oh, and, and when he's going to go on to be the, the tallest in his family and, and he'll become a, a business executive and he'll have five kids and, and 12 grandkids and he'll be known for his uh, good sense of humor and uh, his... Uh, his, his devotion to prayer and all the rest. I mean, that would be that would be an amazing announcement, right? Hey, this, this one's coming. But this is what Isaiah is doing. And in fact, he's saying that, not that he'll just be a successful or a good man, but he is telling us rather clearly, is he not, that 
that this one who is coming will be the eternal king who will bless the nations. And by the way, you can be confident that it's happening, that it, that it will come about, because God will make sure that it will come about. As you notice the end of verse 7, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God is zealous to bring this about. And, and I'll tell you, I was uh, praying through this passage this morning, and um, not to get too far off my notes, but uh, this, that little phrase, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, has just been sitting on me all morning. That God, listen, God is zealous to redeem. God is zealous to give you grace. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And I'm just thinking, what are you zealous for? I mean, what, what, are you zealous, what, what gets you fired up? Or what gets you mourning when it's taken from you? Maybe it's, maybe it's your reputation at school. You know, people are bad-mouthing me, and, and I'm zealous to be known as this or that. Or maybe it's your ease, or maybe you're zealous for justice. God is zealous to give grace. How different would our lives be if you walked into Monday morning saying, God, above all, I just want to be gracious today. I want to be merciful today. That's where my zeal is. God says, I am zealous to save sinners through this son to give them grace. And so I pray that you hear the word of the Lord this, this morning and you would, you would just, maybe this is what we all walk away with. God is zealous to be gracious to me. Zealous to be gracious to the world, and he will do so through his son. So let's think about what his son will do in, in three steps. I, I really, I wish you didn't have the notes. I, I really, this morning, I was really wrestling with this passage. I, I, I balled up my sermon and threw it in the trash can, started over, um, and then I went to the trash can and brought it back out. Okay, um, so I, I don't know what's going to happen this morning. We'll find out. But, but uh, the the first, I guess, the first couple points if you will, there on your notes. It, this is about the activity of this son who's given. And then, then, then we'll find that last point should be more about his identity. So what will he do and who is he? That's how I'd perhaps rewrite the sermon if I had time. So uh, we see, first of all, what, what does he do? The sun, well, the sun brings light into darkness. Not the first word in, in, in verse uh, 1. But, right, but. So this is a, a, a transition Right? And, and so what we see in chapter 8 is things are going really, really bad. And this son is going to come and he's going to make things much, much better. Or to use the, the language of the prophet, things are really dark and he's going to bring light. And the darkness, as I mentioned, is seen in chapter 8. Uh, uh, Isaiah is prophesying to the people of Judah, the people of God. Spiritually, they are at this point thoroughly pagan. Uh, morally, they are ruthlessly cruel. Uh, nationally, they are incredibly weak. They have failed to trust God. Instead, they're trusting anything and everything else other than God. In verse 19 of chapter 8, we see they're trusting in the dead to find answers about the living, which makes no sense to me. In, chapter, in verse 20 of chapter 8, they've rejected scripture. In verse 21, they're hungry and distressed. And because they're hungry and distressed, they think the best course of action is therefore to curse God. As you see in verse 21. And so it's no wonder we read in Isaiah 8 and verse 22. And they will look to the earth, but behold, this is where they're at. Distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. Now I don't, I don't know if that has a contemporary ring to you as it does to me. Darkness, gloom, anguish. And I know I probably mention this to you every month or so, but I kind of want to keep it, at least it's in the front of my heart, my mind, as we live in the midst of this insane moral revolution that is swirling all around us. And we're right in the middle of it and all the change and all the advance that we're making. I just have to ask the question, I do so about once a month, is everybody happier now? Are all our marriages flourishing now and all our kids well-adjusted and successful now? Is, have, we, have we at this point brought shalom to this land? Are we living in the time of peace and, and, and joy and everybody is, is doing fantastic? No, of course not. No, we, 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 are, we are living in a time of darkness. And I don't mean to be a bummer on Christmas, sorry about that. But it just seems to me like there's anguish. And gloom. And it's into an all too familiar, terrible situation that Isaiah says, for those people in darkness, light is coming. 
light is coming, in fact, into the darkest of places. Notice he uh, refers to the geography of where this light is going to come. So he's very, very specific, isn't he? You see that in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. So there was a time when these two tribes were brought into contempt. But in the latter time, this will happen when, the, when this son is given... He has made glorious the way by the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now he's referring specifically to the tribal region of Naphtali and Zebulun, the, most, the two most northern tribes of Israel. In this day, they're being besieged by uh, this mighty nation, Assyria. And Assyria would continually come down and, and fight these border conflicts in uh, Zebulun and Naphtali. They would carry thousands of Israelites away and, and they would send their own Assyrians to live in their homes and farm their lands. And so this northernmost region became a mixed region there amongst the people of God in this time. This is why it's referred to as Galilee of the nations or Galilee of the Gentiles. And they would mix their religion with those who lived there and leading to great moral and spiritual darkness. It was a dark and terrible place to live. And the prophet says it's in these places that the light will first come. That is surprising to us. Because Galilee is not important. It's not prominent, right? If, if, we're gonna, if God's going to do something big, he starts in Jerusalem, doesn't he? Right? We start in D.C. And God says, no, I'm starting in Berryville. Okay? That's where the light's coming. We're going to start there. Okay? We're, we're going to go to the place that, that's forgotten, that no one even knows about, that, that, that the salvation is coming from Galilee. They will be the first to receive the light. In fact, the prophet continues in verse 2 and he says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, or maybe your translation says the, the, the shadow of death, on them the light has shone. And, and, and this, this has happened. The light has come and it has come in Jesus Christ. And it, we don't have time to go there, but you can look at Matthew chapter 4. John the Baptist is arrested. Jesus therefore leaves Jerusalem, Judah, and he goes up to Galilee. In particular, Matthew tells us he goes to Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled. Christ is going to let his light shine first in the darkest of places. Now, darkness, as you know, is not particular to Galilee. And, and all of you have come to Christ. Please understand, you too once lived in darkness, didn't you? And maybe you're there right now. Maybe not the darkness of unbelief, but the darkness of despair, difficulty. Maybe some of you are in the darkness of depravity and delusion. And I'm telling you, God's light has shone in Jesus, for he says in John 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so I tell you this morning, according to the words of Christ, you don't have to live in darkness. You don't. That's your choice. Christ says, I am the light that has come into this world. You come with me. We're walking in the light. We're leaving the darkness behind. He offers you that this very moment. I wonder, have you seen the light of Christ? Perhaps you come here this morning, your family is a, in a place of a darkness, you might say. Right? And it, the light seems to be growing in your home dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. Your home's a place of sadness, grief. I'm telling you, the gospel will transform that. Right? You, you, listen, this is moms, dads, you, you saturate your life. And then begin to saturate your home with the truth and love of Christ. He will begin a work of transformation in your home. This is what Christ has promised to do. You, you, uh, we have found Jesus to be a light in a dark place, have we not? And if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. I, I offer this to you, that he sent his light into the world, and now he calls you to believe in him. Jesus would say in John chapter 12, while you have in the light, here it is. Listen, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. My, my Christian brothers and sisters, of course, you might not be in darkness, but we are surrounded by people who are walking in darkness, are we not? I mean, they're, they're, they're surrounded by people living in the shadow of death. And it was certainly uh, incredibly apparent to me as I was traveling in the Middle East last month, and I'm in a city of 4 million people, and we know maybe of 200 believers. I mean, it's just stunning to me. It's just 
sea of darkness. And then we could just repeat that in most nations in this world. I mean, just one after another. But we don't even have to go to the nations. You just have to go to work or walk to your neighbors. There's darkness everywhere. And so I remind us what the Bible says in Acts 13. The Lord's speaking to Barnabas and Paul, but I think to us as well. I have made you a light for the Gentiles. We are to be a light to the Gentiles. That, that's to the nations, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. This is why we, why we give to Lottie Moon Christmas offering. This is why my family sacrifices every year. Because we want to be a light to the nations. We want to send people to the nations. But, but we want to be a light to our neighbors. This, one of the reasons we have a Christmas cantata next Sunday is, is not just for you. People are more inclined to come to something like that that they might not come on, on another Sunday. So you invite your neighbors. Hey, you want to come hear a choir sing this Christmas? People, when's the last time people have heard a choir sing? I mean, they're, they're, they're falling left and right. We still have a choir. Come listen to it. Or we have a Christmas Eve service at, uh, uh, on Christmas Eve at 5 p.m. Come, invite your neighbors to that. Or maybe you, maybe you go to work tomorrow. Or, or maybe you go to school tomorrow. And someone asks you, hey, what did you do this weekend? And you say, well, you know, part of the weekend I spent thinking how Christ brings light into darkness. Maybe you just drop that. And, and, and maybe you have the opportunity to take, a, take an extra base. And maybe you could push the conversation and talk about how Jesus has died to pay for uh, sin and, and defeated death and, and, and was raised from the dead three days later. And, and if you do, if you're anything like me, half the time you're saying these things, you will feel ridiculous saying them. You ever feel that way? And you see the eyes roll and there he goes again. Right? Yeah, 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 that's nice. And off they go. And you feel kind of defeated and bummed out. I didn't go so well. Well, who knows if not six months later. That same guy at the water cooler you're sharing there on Monday or that, that classmate that you talked to, second period on Monday, they come to you six months later and that classmate says, hey, uh, my dad was just diagnosed with cancer. Or that, that, that coworker comes to you and says, uh, my wife just walked out on me. And all I could think about is you said, I don't know if you remember, six months ago, you said Jesus brings light to darkness. Will you tell me a little bit more about that light? We have come to share that light, not just to receive it, but to extend it. You see, he brings light to darkness. Secondly, the sun brings joy into despair. Of course, uh, Israel or Judah at this time is in the middle, midst of despair, uh, in particular that they are facing uh, an imminent evasion of a nation, uh, Syria. You look in chapter 8 and verse 7, and we read these words. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, many, mighty and many. A flood's coming, he says. What, what's this flood? The king of Assyria and all his glory. Okay, so they are on the verge of national conquest. I, I, <laughs> that's unimaginable to us, isn't it? You talk about hopelessness, and God says, into that situation, I'm going to bring, dis, uh, I'm going to bring joy. And he begins to speak about how he's going to do it, at least alludes to it in verse 4 of our passage in chapter 9. He says, for the yoke of his burden, okay, that, that's the oppressor, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Midian. So he's reminding them of the time in which they were being harassed and dominated by the nation of Midian. And at that point, uh, the Israelites weren't living in homes, but they were living in caves. They weren't farming their fields, but they were up in mountain clefts. And God comes to the weakest clan and the weakest family of that clan to a coward who's hiding in a wine press named Gideon. And he says to this man, listen, get an army together, we're going to battle. So Gideon gets an army, puts out the call, 32,000 soldiers come, and God says, whoa, 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 that's way too many. And, and Gideon does what no other general I think has ever done or ever will do. He sends his army home except for 300 soldiers, and he arms them not with swords and shields, but with pottery and a torch. And they go into battle. And God gives them the great victory, does he not? Well, how's that relevant? Well, you see, God is telling us, just like in that day, he took an unlikely savior to show that the victory, that is the salvation, doesn't come through human power, but by God's grace. 
Now, Isaiah is preparing us for an even more unlikely liberator, an even more unlikely hero who, who goes to battle with a very peculiar strategy to deliver us from a far cooler enemy. Instead of a general, he sends a baby. That's odd. Instead of a massive army, he's got a handful of followers. Instead of a battle, the only blood that's shed is his own on a solitary cross. And it is a victory won through this selfless sacrifice. And it's through that victory that Isaiah is helping us get ready for. And he'll do a far more clear job as we get to Isaiah 53 in the coming weeks. It's through this victory that his people who are once in despair will rejoice in God's great joy. And you see that joy described for us in verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the harvest, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So I want you to see the joy in which God is trying to bring by uh, defeating our enemies is no meager joy. He says it's joy like harvest time when you bring in the yield that sustains your family and, and, and lets life continue. It's joy uh, like the soldiers dividing the spoils of the enemy, right? The, the opponent is defeated, the nation is saved, and now there's abundance lying at their feet. It's that kind of joy, God is saying. It's joy like when you have the cancer comes and with it a death sentence and then the doctor says I can't believe the scan but the cancer is gone it's that kind of joy it's kind of the joy when you're hanging over the edge and your strength is failing and below you is eternal doom and God comes and he delivers you from that a savior comes and he brings you back from that and he gives you eternal life God says I want to put that joy in you so I wonder, do you have that joy? Do, do you have a, a strength in the joy in which God has placed in your heart through the work of Jesus Christ? You know something of that, especially this Christmas season. It's a joy that comes like when the enemy's defeated and the peace is given and the war is over. Of course, we're not under oppression of Assyria. No, our slave master is far worse than Assyria. It's sin and death and wrath. And the Son of God is going to come and defeat it. He's, in fact, going to fight this battle for us, as Isaiah tells us in verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. You see, what he's saying is, listen, you can go ahead and burn your uniforms now. You can melt your swords down now. You are not going to need them for this battle. Because the Son is coming, and he will do all the fighting for you. All we do is step onto the battlefield and we enjoy the, 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 the celebration of the victory right, as he comes to bring us peace against our greatest enemies. And so uh, even as was read for us this morning, I would, I would echo, yes, they come and bring uh, good news of great joy. And so these are the promises of the prophet Isaiah of what the Messiah will do, the coming one. Um, and, of course, then he goes on to tell us who will do it. And it is somewhat stunning. We, we might think about this third point. The sun brings peace into turmoil. might be more um, perhaps accurately understood as the identity. Who is this one who will do this? And we read, as we've already seen in verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Now, that's very familiar to us. And, and, but I, I hope you understand how odd this is. I don't want the familiarity to rob you of how strange. God says, listen, you're going to have victory in battle over your greatest enemies, right? And you're not going to have to do any of this battling. And then the, you see the first word in, in verse 6? Because, or for, God's going to give you a baby. Right? That's strange, right? right? Okay, yeah, we, we got this covered. Light and darkness, victory over our enemies through a child. It all hinges on this child, for a child is born. So light and darkness, joy and despair, peace and turmoil is caused by a son who is given. But you, of course, know, you know this passage. It's not any son, is it? <laughs> and you see this unbelievable description, perhaps one of the greatest, uh, I would say indeed the greatest Old Testament description of Jesus. This fourfold description of who he is, we begin by seeing that he is the wonderful counselor. A counselor, of course, is someone who guides or instructs or imparts wisdom. 
And so Jesus, with this son, this child, our Lord Jesus, would, would not just be a counselor, however, he would be a wonderful counselor, a counselor who brings wonder, a counselor who brings amazement. And we see this, if you, uh, in particular, you read the Gospels and you, you hear Jesus' teaching, and how many times do we see this little phrase, and they wondered at his teaching, or they marveled at his teaching. It was wonderful to them. It was astonishing to them. And of course, it's not just found in the Gospels, but found throughout the word of, the word of the Lord, from Genesis to Revelation. It's all God's word, and it is indeed wonderful counsel to us. And I, I don't know if you long for wisdom in your life. I don't know if you have decisions to, to make or action to take. And if you do, you need counsel, don't you? Well, Isaiah promises through Christ there is wonderful and beautiful and glorious, indeed perfect wisdom found in him to guide your lives into to what is both good and right. And I'm just reminded how much, how much greater his wisdom is than ours. His, his ways are better, his thoughts are higher, his counsel is wonderful. And in some sense, I wonder if this is our, our, one of our greatest needs today. As you think about all the advances that we've made in, in, in knowledge and science and technology and our understanding of the cosmos and the human body and our advances in health and safety and the strides we've taken in unimaginable technology, things we couldn't even dreamed of 20 years ago, and yet it's common to us today. And we all these amazing growth and understanding and knowledge, and yet we are perhaps more ignorant than ever to the most profound questions in life. Right? Is there any meaning to life? Do I have a destiny? Is there a purpose? Is there any significance? Can I know it to be true? Like you look at, you ask our most educated in this world and all they have is, is blank stares and foolish answers to give to us. I'm telling you, the most important questions are answered in Christ. He is a wonderful counselor who tells us who we are and how he has made us and, and, and what we need to do. We should therefore consider his word. We should be constantly letting them penetrate our minds and our hearts. Of course, when you think about the fact that he's this wonderful counselor, the implication is that Jesus has come for people with problems, right? People in need, right? You go to counsel in times of need, don't you? And maybe you're in time of need right now. Well, there is one who can help you. Right? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the word of God. It is a light unto our path. I wonder why we would go to seek other counsel without first seeking this, that we would trust him for guidance. You think, who is this child? Who is this son? Well, he's the wonderful counselor. But not just that, uh, perhaps the most extraordinary of all these titles is the next. He is the mighty God, El Gabor, God the strong, God the valiant. So we, we need God to be wise, certainly, but we need him to be strong in light of the enemies that we face. It's interesting to think about uh, this phrase that this son, and be very clear, I just think this is, I, I don't know what non-Christians do with Isaiah 9, 6, to be perfectly honest. A baby is given, a son is given, and he will be called mighty God. I mean, what do you do with that other than the incarnation? I don't know. Uh, I have no idea how they handle it. But I, I will tell you, you read the book of Isaiah, and Isaiah is over and over and over again. The theme of Isaiah is there is no other gods. You think that's a god? That's just a stump of wood. That's dumb. Get away from it. You think that's a god? No, you're just talking to evil spirits. Get away from those. There, there, there is no other god. Isaiah continually says there's just one god. There's just one god. There's just one god. And then we come to Isaiah 9, 6. And he says, oh, by the way, the baby is God. The, 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 the child that is born is none other than the mighty God. So how's that possible? It's only possible in Christ. Jesus is the mighty God. I mean, who else can feed 5,000 with, with a handful of loaves except him who declared himself to be the bread of life? And who else can open the eyes of the blind except him who declared of himself, I am the light of the world? Or who else can say to a tax collector, salvation has come into this home except him who declared of himself, I am the gate. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. And who else can stand at the grave and beckon the dead to come forth Except he who declared of himself, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Who is this child? Well, he is God Almighty. The mighty God. Third, he is the everlasting father. And this gets a little bit confusing for some people. Because we believe that God is triune. That there is one God manif 
manifest in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We understand Jesus is the Son, not the Father. But here we have a reference to Jesus being called the Father. So do they do a little switcheroo? I mean, are they you know, switching places here? No, I don't, I don't think so. I think simply what the prophet is trying to help, help us understand is that Jesus, as the Messiah, will be like a father to his people. He'll be father-like. He will be compassionate and providing and caring and protecting. And, and I, I, I know I talk about my kids pretty much every sermon. Uh, I'm sorry about that, but just deal with it. Um, you know, I, I, I love being a father. It's one of the greatest honors of my life. Uh, God has given me, by his grace, eight kids that I, I get to, to care for and to love and to provide and to protect. It is, uh, it is an incredible, incredible joy in my life. It's hard sometimes, to be honest, but it is a great, great honor. And one of the greatest honors is that I get to be a father, and my God is also a father. And so what he is uh, explaining to us is that my children will come to see a father that is unseen by, by the father that they can see, namely me. That, that is, my fatherhood should represent something like God's fatherhood. Well, Jesus says, listen, when I think about that is how much I'd love to be a father. Jesus says, I, I wanna, I, I'm a father. In other words, what Jesus, Jesus longs to care for us, just like any decent dad. Jesus longs to provide. Jesus longs to help and love and protect. In fact, when I think it says everlasting father, and I'm not alone on this, he's, he's not referring to his everlasting nature, uh, but rather that he's referring that his father-like care is never ending. His fatherly provision never comes to an end. He will never get bored with you and never move on. Say, so what else is there to do? Okay, I'm done taking care of these kids, right? No, he, he is delight, everlasting father. His father of you will never end. Of course, it is through Christ that you know that we become children of God. We'll see in Isaiah 53 in a number of weeks, God willing, that he shall see, speaking of the Messiah, Jesus, he shall see his, you know what it is? Offspring. That's Jesus. We'll see his offspring. In other words, it is through Christ that we become God's children, that he is not content to leave us on the streets fighting for our own survival. He's going to bring us into his family. So we need him to be a wonderful counselor because we don't know the truth. We need him to be mighty God because our enemies are great. And we need him to be the everlasting father because we long for a home. Don't you? You long for a family, a place to belong. And Jesus says, I will be that for you. The fourth, we see that he is the prince of peace. Once again, I'm, I'm reminded that we live in a world of restlessness and anxiety. Um, again, this is somewhat stunning to me. I mean, we're, we haven't solved this problem yet. And you go to the bookstore and you see all the self-help books, and, and then they'll all have different titles, but it'll all be the same book. And they will say, every one of these books will say, look inside yourselves. And, uh, and uh, you know, you, you look deep enough, you search around enough inside, you'll find God in there. He's in there. My, my four-year-old was watching My Little Pony on, on the other day, and I just catch, I don't sit down and watch it with her because I can't handle it, but I, I, caught, I caught the song, and it was just a little song singing about the light deep inside of us, and uh, you look deep enough, and you're going to find that light. I said, turn that on. No, we're, no more ponies in my house. We're done with that. It's nonsense, right? Sorry, sweetheart. I don't know if she's still okay. She's in nursery. All right, we're okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm stick to my notes. Okay? But, but we're constantly told, listen. We have the ability within us to solve the problems that plague us. Well, how many centuries are we going to try that? Right? When are we ever going to wake up and say, wait a second, this doesn't seem to be working? It's emptiness and anxiety and futility. Why? Because we are not at peace with our maker. There is an incurable sickness in this world because we have rejected the one who has created us, the one who we are accountable to. It is the theologian David Wells who says our culture is sagging beneath the burden of emptiness. Peace is so elusive. I tell you where you can find it. You can find it in Jesus. He is our peace. Now many people come to Jesus because they want their life to get better. Like there's the trouble in their life and it drives them back to church and say, well, uh, you know, can Jesus fix my marriage? And can Jesus help my career? And well, I, I, I think he can. I think he can. But I'm not, listen, I'm not sure that's the best question. 
Like, can Jesus solve my problems is not the best question you should be asking. It's like a kid who asks, if a bomb explodes next to me, will I get hot? Okay. Well, yeah, you'll get hot, but that's not really the point, right? I mean, that, that, that's not the question you're going to be asking, right? Can, can God help me with your problems? I think perhaps the better question is, can God give himself to me? Can I have peace, in other words, despite my problems, right? Because God's not going to fix all your problems. All of you understand that. We all got problems. He hasn't fixed them all. But what he has, he has changed the way which we can face them. So you may never have the money you want, but, but you do have Christ who promises to supply all your needs and has promised you one day you'll inherit the earth. Right? You may not experience victory over the temptations, but, but in Christ you have been clothed in righteousness and one day you will be made completely pure. See, you may be in this life hard-pressed, but in Christ you'll never be crushed. You may be perplexed, but you'll never be in despair. You may be persecuted, but you'll never be forsaken. You may be struck down, but you will never be destroyed if you have Jesus. He is our Prince of Peace. Who is this child? He's the Prince of Peace. And as a prince he shall reign, as you see in verse 7, of the increase of his government and of his peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. You see, the, the child who's born is a king. He has a government, he has a throne, he has a kingdom. Right? The Magi were right when they came asking, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We have seen his star and we have come to worship him. He, in other words, not some cute little child. He's come to reign. He's come to establish his kingdom. And we see very clearly in verse 7, this prince of peace has come to establish a kingdom where he offers peace to all who would yield to his authority. Every, it seems to me every good ruler in the history of humanity, desires there to be peace for their people. Uh, it seems to me every form of government promises peace, but, but they're, all, they're all failing, right? They, they, all, they don't give justice and righteousness. And you just think about the nations in the biblical times. You think about Egypt and Assyria and, and Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome, or you think of the nation of Israel. They were all, at many times, most of the time, places of oppression and injustice. Or you get beyond the Bible, you think about the barbarian hordes or, or the, the reign of the church during the Dark Ages. And, and, and that didn't go any better as far as offering peace. And, of course, last couple hundred years, we're really into democracy and, you know, government of the people, for the people, by the people, and, and all the rest. And every four years, we, we elect a, a new leader. And, and every four years, that leader says, okay, I'm here to solve all your problems. Right? I'm still waiting. I don't know about you. I, I think Churchill was right when he says democracy is the worst form of government except for all other forms of government. Okay. Okay. We're still waiting. We're still waiting for this peace. Well, you see, the son, the prophet says, will be the king we've always wanted. Like the only one who can truly rule this world. And God willing, next week when we study Isaiah 11, we're gonna, we'll see that he's going to bring full economic and relational and spiritual and, and uh, flourishing into our lives. He's going to banish injustice and violence and war. He's even going to banish death. And there'll be no more war with sin and there'll be no more sorrow in our hearts and no more hurt and no more pain and no more despair and no more conflict, no more strife, no more enmity between God and man. And who's going to do this? None other, I'll tell you, none other than this child who's given to us, none other than this baby who is born to us, none other than Jesus Christ, the, the crucified, risen, reigning, and soon returning King of Kings. He will come to make all things new and establish this kingdom that's promised us here in verse 7. And I don't, I don't know if you notice, and of his kingdom there will be no end. You see that there in verse 7? Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. Now let's be clear. It's not that his government will not end or the peace will not end. It's the increase of the government and peace that will not end. Like, in other words, the peace and the reign of Christ will forever expand. The increase is never ending. And we see the increase right now. The, the external increase began just there. Started there in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. And it continues to grow 
and nations continue to come in and it continues to expand. The 20th century was the greatest missionary advance of the Christian church in all centuries combined. It's happening right now. The external increase of the reign of Christ is abounding, but it is also an internal increase of it, right? Our love for him is going to grow. Our love for our neighbors is growing. And so the kingdom, his authority in, within my life is growing, it's increasing. Like the, to the degree in which you submit more and more of your life to, to the reign of, of King Jesus, you're, you're actually fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 9-7. The increase is happening within you internally, externally, and I think eternally. Even when he returns, even when he sets up the new earth and the new kingdom and there's no more evangelism and there's no more need for sanctification, like we will be, become morally pure like he is pure, I think the kingdom continues to grow. That is, I don't think there will be ever a moment when we say, okay, I've seen it all now. Right? You're going to be living there for 10 billion years and you're never going to get to the point where you say, okay, now what? Is there anything else? Anything else to cause me amazement and joy and delight in this one who reigns. There will never come a moment where there's nothing, nothing more to, to show us and to, for us to experience. Each moment, in other words, is going to be better than the last forever. Forever. You see, God is unbounded in power and unlimited in resources and unfathomable in wisdom. And he will see that this is done. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. So here it is. This is the, the birth announcement of Jesus. That's a lot to live up to, right? I mean, the prophet has set the bar pretty high for this one to come. And yet when he came, was he not the one who said to the paralyzed man, take up your mat and go home? Was he not the one who met the lady with five husbands and now living with her lover? And he says to her, I offer you living water in which you will never thirst again. I mean, who else can silence the demons and send them on their way, liberating the oppressed? Who else can say to the wind and the waves, listen, that's quite enough from you now. You know, settle down and they obey. Who else can say to the woman uh, of iniquity, your sins are forgiven. Who else can say that before Abraham was, I am. Who else can tell the dying thief on the cross because of his faith in him, today you will be with me in paradise. Who is this child in this manger? Well, the poet once wrote, who is he born in the stall at whose feet the shepherds fall? Who is he who stands and weeps at the grave where Lazarus sleeps? Who is he upon the tree, dies in grief and agony? Who is he that from the grave comes to heal and help and save? Who is he that from his throne rules through all the world alone? Tis the Lord. Oh, wonder story. Tis the Lord, the king of glory. At his feet we humbly fall. Crown him, crown him, Lord of all. And so, my brothers and sisters, in light of these truths, may I, for the next four minutes, give you four words of application. Just quickly, how should we apply this to our lives? Word number one, celebration. This Christmas season, I believe, you should not just simply celebrate with your family, not simply celebrate with gifts and all the rest and cookies and candles. Intentionally celebrate Jesus Christ. Find ways to do that. Within your home, within your family, we sent out an Advent reading for you to read with your family. Right? In a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. It's one way in which we intentionally celebrate this one who has come for us. Word number two, anticipation. I pray that Isaiah 9 would in some sense and whet your appetite for his return. Because it all has not been fulfilled yet. Right? Last time I turned on the news, I mean, it's not, things aren't going well. If I prayed for Kentucky already, it's terrible what's happened there. But even, even you take out the, the natural disasters. I mean, when you turn on the news, all you hear about is justice and righteousness reigning out there. It's just a land of peace. No, it's despair and darkness. So we've established 
And so may you anticipate, long for, desire, pray for the return of Christ. And even once again, the Lord's Supper, which we're going to take in a moment, is in part not just to celebrate what he has done, but to anticipate his return. For uh, the scripture tells us when we eat of this cup and, uh, excuse me, uh, drink of this cup and eat of this bread, we will proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We anticipate his return, which leads us to our third word, proclamation. Proclamation, as we celebrate what's happened and anticipate what will happen, we need to proclaim it to others. And you are likely going to gather with non-believers this Christmas. They're going to be in your home or they're going to, you're going to be in their homes. You have the truth. And I pray that you would have the courage and the wisdom to, to be able to share that in a way that's helpful, a, a way that God would lead you as we want to talk about Jesus with non-believers this Christmas season. Celebration, anticipation, proclamation, and then lastly, reception. I simply want to ask whether you have indeed received this song. You see, you see that, Isaiah 9, 6? For unto us a child is born. Get, read this very carefully. For to us a son is given. He's been given. He's a, he's a gift, but you have to receive him. The Bible says you receive the gift of Jesus Christ through faith. Not by works, not by cleaning your acts up but by yielding your life to Jesus in faith, turning from your sins, and declaring that this one who has died for you and has paid for your debt of sin on the cross, bearing the wrath of God and risen three days later, is none other than the Son of God, and he will save you if you turn your life over to him. And so I pray, even as we pray together, that you might receive Christ this morning. Our Father in heaven, uh, in light of these truths, it is indeed, I think, a Merry Christmas. Um, I don't know, maybe we're in here, we're not, we don't feel so merry. I, pr I pray that, I, I just, even as I started, do not leave us in darkness, Father. Do not leave us in ignorance, do not leave us in oppression. When Light is offered to us when freedom is offered to us, when salvation is offered to us right now in Christ. And for those of us who received it, how can that not change everything about our lives? There has to be something about our lives that's different than this world. I pray that that would be true. And I pray that that light would shine not only in our actions, but in the words that we share. We thank you, Father, that you gave us your son. We're thankful that all that we've read today and considered, you will make sure is done because you are zealous to redeem. You are zealous for the work of Jesus. You are zealous to extend grace to those who need it through faith in Christ. We pray that you would do so even now, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.